0: Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Sally Koslow, author of the new novel, The Real Mrs. Tobias. Bestselling author Christina Baker Klein wrote about the novel. With a shrewd eye and a light touch, Sally Koslow weaves a story about three strong women whose memories, dreams, and desires conflict and intersect as they navigate a series of family crises. Warm, witty, and heartfelt, The Real Mrs. Tobias is a cinematic, fast-paced treat. Sally, welcome to the podcast.
1: I'm very happy to be here, Jeff.
0: Absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your novel, The Real Mrs. Tobias, how would you describe the novel?
1: Well, first and foremost, it's a family saga. It's a family that's slightly dysfunctional, but listen, what family isn't? And what makes this a bit unusual is that I've told the story from the viewpoint of three women who have married into the family, three generations who are not blood relatives. There's the matriarch of the family. Her name's Veronica. She's 74, highly functioning as a psychotherapist. There is her daughter-in-law, whose name is Melanie or Mel, and uh, she Mel has her daughter-in-law in the picture, too. Uh, her name is Bertie, married to Mel's son. So um, one of the things that makes this book interesting, I think, and I think readers would agree, is that it explores the tricky relationship between mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law.
0: And, and I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write The Real Mrs. Tobias?
1: You know, I've had a mother-in-law for longer than I've had a mother. And I have a very interesting dynamic mother-in-law, but it hasn't always been easy. I'm a Midwesterner who moved to New York City and she was far more sophisticated than I am when we first started out here. And there were all sorts of differences. So I've always found it an interesting dynamic, that of mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law. And um, I didn't want to tell the story in a traditional way and thought hmm, this will be interesting and <laughs> uh and and it was to write yes
0: and and I'm curious when you sat down to write this and you had this idea of um uh, mothers and mother-in-laws did you did you uh have did you sit down and write uh um an outline before you began or did you just kind of have the initial germ of the idea and just kind of dive into the narrative to see where it- took you
1: i am in all the books i've written and this is my sixth sixth novel that i'm being that's publishing i never do an outline but i always know the basic idea and um i keep my eye on the ball that way and as things develop it gets more and more interesting as i get to know the characters better i think if i would try to outline a complete book in advance that it it wouldn't have as many nuances it, it would it would be flatter somehow because as I go along so many ideas occur to me, ways that, that make this telling the story better. So that's my method works for me. And other people swear by an outline and they say if they didn't have an outline they wouldn't know what to write next. So every writer does what works for them.
0: Sure. Well I know that before you started writing novels, you were the editor-in-chief of McCall's magazine. I'm curious, when you were working in magazines and editing, were you writing fiction at night? Did you always want to be a novelist? What led you to writing your first novel?
1: Jeff, I never wrote a word of fiction until after I was no longer a magazine editor. Um, I was the editor-in-chief of McCall's, which is an, was an iconic American brand. It was... 124 years old when it was converted into a magazine for Rosie O'Donnell and I you don't make this stuff up that really happened
2: <laughs> and then
1: I actually got another job as a which was very interesting to be the editor chief of a new magazine to create a magazine for lifetime television which this was before the days of HBO and and Netflix and Amazon Prime and all the Hulu and you know everything we take for granted to fill our evenings Um, I, Lifetime was a very, very successful. I mean, it's still around and still successful, but it was really successful back then. And they wanted a magazine, much like Oprah had a magazine. So I created a magazine. So until that job ended, because most new magazines unfortunately fold, and that Mm -hmm. one did too after a few years, um, while I was looking for a new job as a magazine editor, I... Decided to join a writing workshop just for fun um, because I never had any time to do my own writing as an editor in chief. That's a very comprehensive job, as you might imagine. And I ran a staff of about fifty people, and there was a huge budget, and there were all sorts of people to answer to. Was it was a you know your basic fourteen hour day. Yeah. So um, I I sat down for the first. It was actually a nonfiction writing workshop class but um i i wrote a little take on what it was like to go to a chanel sample sale and i fictionalized it and everyone in the group really loved it so i just my teacher said doesn't matter that it is fiction just take it from there because it was quite memoirish and as time went by i just never i i guess it's fair to say i became a little less enthusiastic about looking for a job because the magazine industry was beginning to fade a little bit. Sure. Now it's basically all in the dark. It's not around much anymore. Um, And the magazines that were popular were very celebrity oriented. And I really didn't want to have worked all those years to go into something where Kardashian worship worship was a requisite. So um, I wound up uh, writing my, trying to sell my first book, which was, Hmm, let's say it's sort of a thinly disguised book about an editor-in-chief whose <laughs> trajectory was much like my own and uh, who was the editor of a big women's magazine, the kind that you throw in the shopping cart along with the cool whip, and she loses her job to an outrageous celebrity. So, hmm, what are <laughs> the odds of that happening? So, uh, that book sold in an auction to an iconic editor. It was, she was someone who back in the day had discovered Peyton Place, which your readers might not even, your listeners might not even know, but it was, you know, a hugely successful uh, hot book in, I think the middle of the 1950s. Sure. And this woman was a famous, famous publisher and then became an editor. And before we had our first lunch date, she died. But I always felt like she was the angel on my shoulder. And um, my book got transferred over to another editor. And I just had a very good experience writing fiction and decided, I think I'll stick with it.
0: That's great. Well, I know that you've taught creative writing. What writing advice would you offer to those who are working on their own stories or novels?
1: Well, that is a very good question. Um, I, From personal experience, I know that it's wonderful to be in a writing workshop. So I would suggest to any would-be writers out there that they find such a workshop, and they exist all over the place. You can look at the local college. I used to teach at Sarah Lawrence in their wonderful writing institute, and they're comparable. I don't know if they're comparable, but they're writing institutes all over the place. You can look online. Now, because of Zoom, people can be in writing workshops that are led by teachers across an ocean, let's say. I have a friend in New York who teaches such a writing workshop, and one of his students is from Barcelona. She has to be willing to join the class at 11.30 p.m. her time, but she Mm -hmm. doesn't, I guess. So I I think it's wonderful to be in a writing workshop because what I have found is that even though my colleague writers all might not be really necessarily talented writers because, you know, we're all learning or maybe at different levels, they might be very good readers. And that's a different skill set to be able to read and critique. And it's really important, I think, for someone to read your work and say, "Mm, I'm getting a little lost here, or this is really funny, or this isn't clear. Um, And um, of course, you know, you have to, you have to use your own judgment in terms of evaluating whether or not those who are in the writing workshop do get your goals and you can't respond to every suggestion for change or you wind up with a big mess. You have to be discerning, but I really do think writing, writing, being in a writing workshop is is helpful. And then also reading a lot. Reading and reading perhaps in a different way, not just reading for storyline, but reading to see how something is structured and how the dialogue takes shape, how the narrative takes its form, how the rooms are described, the events in the book, and just reading, which usually means reading slowly. So I would say those two things are probably the most important.
0: Sure. Well, I know that you grew up Jewish in Fargo, North Dakota. What was that experience like compared to later living and working in New York City?
1: Well, I didn't grow up in New York City, so I can't exactly compare because I was a child when I lived in North Dakota, where I was a young adult when I moved to New York, but I was part of a warm, was small, but warm Jewish community, um, but I didn't have the experience that I might have had, let's say, if I lived in Long Island, where all of my friends were Jewish. In fact, hardly any of them were, because there were only about eight kids my age who were Jewish, and I went to, a, believe it or not, even in Fargo. Went to a very big high school because we had only one high school um, in town until my senior year, we'd divide into two, but they were still big classes. So um, I look upon those days of my life with a lot of warmth. But I was curious to move to a big city, and specifically New York, because I wanted the magazine industry, and this is where it is or was. So um, I, I knew, I learned a bit what it was like to. have the experience of being in the minority, because when I lived in Fargo, the Jewish community, we were the minority. It's not that way anymore. It's a much more diverse community. Um, It's it's probably three times as big as when I lived there, and it's been welcoming to many, many refugees. And actually, the Jewish population is quite small now, but um, it was an interesting experience for me. It was predominantly Scandinavian, uh, many many people in Fargo were Scandinavian here. Lots of Norwegians, um, and so if you imagine what's like in Scandinavia now, some of the nice qualities came were incorporated into the way we lived. There was a lot of music in the schools, and it was a very clean community. Nobody left a gum wrapper on their lawn. <laughs> so um, it was it was actually a very very lovely place to grow up, and I still have a lot of friends from the Dakotas.
2: Well, as you mentioned,
0: you you were the editor-in-chief of McCall's Magazine um, and worked in magazines and the magazine industry and moved to New York City for that reason. What was your experience in, in magazines before you ended up at McCall's?
1: Well, I started out at Mademoiselle Magazine, which was it no longer... Resist. Jeff, if you look at my resume, most of the magazines <laughs> don't exist anymore. But Mademoiselle was a, quite a sophisticated magazine for young women, mostly in their 20s. And um, I, if, if I had come from the New York suburbs or let's maybe New Jersey, I wouldn't have had the nerve to apply for a job at this company because it was very fancy. It was Condé Nast, very, very elegant, fancy company. But I didn't know any of that. I was dumb enough to apply. And I got a job, and it was it was really a great experience. Although I must say I wasn't exactly overloaded with work, uh, we had more than enough time to do our work. But we also weren't paid very well, so I guess that's how they could afford to have a large staff with a light workload. But um, the it was mostly women, and on the staff, and very smart, interesting women. So I made friends, and also. I learned a lot through observing how the editors higher up in the masthead than I was would uh, edit my articles that I wrote. So it was a really very fortunate experience. And also sometimes I think I got some cute
0: clothes. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So are you working on another novel now?
1: I'm I'm always working on something. Um, I have one book that I refer to as my COVID book. So during the pandemic, I I wrote a book that um, hasn't been sold yet. I hope it'll get sold. And then I started something else a couple of months ago that I'm about 75 pages into. But I'm much too superstitious to talk about either one of them. So I just don't do that because I'm afraid that's the kiss of death.
0: No, completely understand. Well, What books have you read recently that you enjoyed?
1: Oh, wow. Good question. Okay. So I... At the okay, so at the the last book I think I finished was called Hurricane Girl. It was a very short book by an author I'd never read before named Marcy Dermansky, and I just loved this book. It had a very abbreviated writing style, very clipped, kind of like Carl Hyacin, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Florida writer. Yep, and it was about a young woman who had a bad relationship in California and decided to just up and leave. And she bought a house in one of the Carolinas. And about a week later it was washed away in a hurricane, hence hurricane girl, the title, but, um, she gets herself into a bad situation where someone tries to murder her. And the rest of the book, um, it's very tense and very witty and very simplistic and just quite unusual. So I, I really love that book. Um, I'm in two book clubs, and um, one of a, one of the book clubs is reading a book called um, uh, by James McBride, who I've read before. Really fine African American writer. It's called Deacon King Kong. I'm pretty sure that's the title, but I am not very far in that book. Um, I read so much <laughs> that <laughs> if I don't keep track of the books on Goodreads, I forget what I've even read you know, a few weeks before, actually in the car today, driving out to visit some cousins, I started reading a wonderful book called When We Were Young and Beautiful. I'm pretty sure that's the name by Jillian Madoff, who's an author I know and admire. Um, and, um, it, I think it's going to be a great read. So those are three, but Um, I've read all of Sally Rooney's oeuvre, three books, I think. She's like 28 years old and has already written three wonderful novels. Um,
0: (sighs) Lots. That's great. Well, Where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your new novel, The Real Mrs. Tobias? Uh,
1: Well, it's very, very easy to find me online. So www.sallycoslo.com. So that would be spelled... S A L L Y K O S L O W. And uh, if you go to my website, you would find uh, portions of all seven books that I've written. Six are novels, but there's one book in there that's kind of a memoir reporting job. It's called Slouching Toward Adulthood. And it's about, I did it about 10 years ago when it was a new thing for people in their 20s to graduated from college and go sleep in their parents' houses for the next few years. Now it's not such a new thing. It's, it's, it was a little bit prescient, that book. But that is my website. It's got a lot on it. A lot of es- I also write a lot of essays. And it's got a lot of my essays on it, too.
0: That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Sally Koslow, author of the new novel, The Real Mrs. Tobias. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Sally, thanks for doing this interview.
1: Thanks a lot, Jeff. It's really good to meet you. And by yeah. the way, the novel's actually not going to be out for, for till early September, but you can pre-order it in any of your favorite venues, be it Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or Independent Bookstore.
0: Yeah, that that's fine. I, I was actually going to schedule this so that it um that oh, it goes okay. up on the like, okay, week of publication. Sorry. No, that's okay. okay. That's not a problem. That's not a problem. Thanks a lot. And you okay. have a
1: great Thanks. weekend. I'm glad this worked out. Bye-bye. I am too.
3: I am too. Thanks Bye. a lot the aroma of roast chicken mingles with the top note of dorissimo, as potent as if lilies grew in the foyer, the scent of my in-law's hospitality. Darling, my father-in-law says as we kiss on both cheeks, looking gorgeous. He is a courtly throwback, able to call a woman darling without being slapped with a sexual harassment suit. Only men born before 1950 have this ability. Once, David and his son, my husband, Jake, were both beyond six feet, though thanks to a herniated disc, my father-in-law is slightly stooped, on his way to becoming a leprechaun. If I wear heels, as I am tonight, we meet eye to eye. His are twinkly, and his headliner of a nose prominent. If David weren't such a natty dresser, he might have walked out of a folktale by Shalom Aleichem, I adore him, and the sentiment is returned. I have my issues with Veronica, my flinty mother-in-law. With David, never. Come in, come in, he booms. There are kisses for Jake, too, to whom David says, your mother is in her cathedral, the kitchen. Are the kids here yet? Jake asks. They texted, they'll be late. David hangs Jake's sport coat and I toss my denim jacket on a chair. After you say hello to your mother, join your old man for a drink. My father-in-law and I may have a mutual admiration society, but the invitation is directed only at Jake. We can watch the World Series later. You have to give it to the Red Sox. That team is the rat's pajamas. I follow Jake as he pushes open a swinging door. On the other side, it's 1992, when his parents installed white laminate cabinets. As my husband greets his mother, he says, loaded for bear? This idiom, which Jake learned at an Adirondacks boys camp, along with a wicked butterfly stroke and a comprehensive off-color vocabulary, is their code speak when he senses that Veronica, his mother, is in a mood. For the record, I'm not angry with your son, she scoffs, just concerned. Who can tell the difference? I can. If a vein throbs above Veronica's left eyelid, she is in the full flower of fury. And there it is. Hello, mother, I say. These are for you. I offer up a bouquet twice as big as her head. Cosmos, dahlias, freesia, hydrangeas, ranunculus. Thank you. Veronica's split-second wince tells me she'd have preferred chocolates or wine. Her eyes scan my vest and choker. When I last wore this getup, scored at a craft show, she remarked that I looked like an escapee from a Renaissance fair. I laughed as if it were a joke. It wasn't. Anything I can do to help, I ask. Please find a vase for the flowers. First closet on the right, the taller Lalique is best. I know where Veronica keeps her vases. I've visited this apartment for 25 years, and little changes beyond books, always hardcover, alphabetized by author. At my apartment, books are arranged by color. My mother-in-law has told me this is an insult to authors. I walk through a hallway hung with family photos, identically framed in black with wide ivory mats. Many document Veronica's beauty, which has evolved from dainty to dignified, as if she'd willed each feature to come into sharper focus. There is only one of her as the child it is hard to believe she ever could have been, 1947, when Veronica and her mama arrived in America. After the war, her mother's hair had grown in silvered, though by the time I knew her, she was a Maryland blonde. In the picture, you can feel the day's elation as mother and daughter begin life in a new country. There are formal portraits of Jake, our twins, Jordan and Micah, and one from my wedding, taken at an angle that makes my nose look enormous. My marriage didn't kick off to the most auspicious start. I was aware that my mother-in-law never quite saw the point of me, when her son could choose from an urban sorority of intellectual spitfires and trust fund princesses, her friend's daughters or Jake's classmates, about whom Veronica would remark in my presence with convulsive admiration. Meryl Grossman had a breast reduction. You'd never recognize her. Nicole Adelman got into dentistry school. Linda Moskowitz, Rita's daughter, said, be sure to tell Jake hello from me, adding, she's an actuary.